a great valley, home to the ancient people of what was to be the state of California, came to be civilized by Father Juan Crespi and his Spanish expedition. Along with Junipero Serra, Father Crespi set about California, finally finding his way south over the mountains into a vast dry wilderness where he established his outpost and turned this valley's primitive heathen to a waiting Christ. The natives were gathered to his mission at San Fernando, a new home for civility and its requested laborers, and as Spain had decreed, a much-needed portal to God. Eventually, followers built homes close by, etching friendly, delineating paths in between their respective lands. They grew crops to sustain themselves and traded them up and up, advancing themselves into the hierarchy of new communities. Irrigation was key to growth, so as time burned on, the water baptized new large ranches, expansive green orchards, and growing towns. The hot, dry grass below the hellish hot hills was tamed into ranches that grew away from the mission, with land parceled to families, some large with grand sustainable names. Years later, the post-war boom of the promising paradise was sown large by smaller, forgettable names, whose many children became failed actors and actresses, coming, going, living and dying amongst the growing streets, while ghosts appearing and disappearing in the decaying streetcars faded away in the dozing of the former great estates, making way for the burdening squeeze of foul apartments, crowding, pollution, and profiting cemeteries. The grand families living on their streets' names, Lancashire, Burbank, Chandler, burning hot in the summer sun, flooded in the February rains, and roped off by police when the valley's gangs so far from the influence and a long-forgotten Father Crespi drip human blood down into their cracks. Welcome to the Sub Pop Cult Podcast. That was the prologue to Ernie Mannix's debut novel, Six Devils in the San Fernando Valley. In this episode, I have asked Ernie to come on, discuss his process, talk about the history of the book, what it means, and also to tell you a little bit about the sequel, which he'll be releasing very soon. It is titled Six Angels in the San Fernando Valley. Because I'm a big, huge fan of Six Devils in the San Fernando Valley, your very first novel. Thank you. That really told the kind of underbelly side of Hollywood. Not only am I a huge fan, but I'm also honored to have a little mention in the inside cover there. Uh, you did the whole which back I, cover, actually. Yeah, whole- well, actually, yes, and I got to do that too. Right. So, and and that was great. So I have a history with this book, yep. but I love the book, and it came out. And anybody who's listening to this podcast has to understand this journey I have with you with this story started when you told me you were writing it many many years ago. Right. And then I don't remember the name of the place, but it was somewhere in Greenwich Village. We sat at a bar after I had read it. Right. And we, we met for some for some beers. We had some Guinness, some burgers at the bar. 
Do you remember what I told you? Well, I don't remember exactly what I told you, but I remember what you did for me because I wrote this basically in a trance. I just wrote from experience and through emotion. You know, and of course, I wanted to make it a great novel, but you told me that it was more than a novel, it was almost a movement. And you said, do you know what you just did? And you, and you said you compared it to um, screw tape and and then you compared it to, you know, novels about Hollywood, which I just was blown away by. Not only flattered, but but awakened. You know, I didn't realize, wow, that's right. You know, I was really I was just telling a story, but they were all true emotions about many of those people were based on actual people that I knew and worked with. So, um, yeah. So you did. So you did hear what I said. And I'm surprised that you remember it because I, I remember specifically telling you, you'll get attacked for what you did. You told me that and you said, look out. And uh, you were, you know, not to sound too biblical, but you were a clarion call. You said this is what you didn't just write a novel. You wrote a TV series, a movie and, you know, and an expose on what's going on out there. Of course, it's on the, yeah, on the operations of evil. This is before the Me Too movement. Right. This is before Harvey Weinstein goes down. Right. This is, this is before anybody got a look at what you and I knew was the reality. Like another, you know, just like a small group of people that we associate with that knew this stuff long before it became public knowledge. So I just want to acknowledge that for anybody who picks up your book. I know your sequel is on the way, but whoever picks up the original novel, Six Devils, has to understand that is the real deal that that landed far before the plot hit your mainstream news. Right. I worked for Harvey Weinstein, you know, um, Truth in Advertising. I worked for him for about six months, not with him, but, you know, I got his paychecks for about six months on a on a film. And um I heard all the stories. I saw other people in Hollywood that behaved extremely horribly, supposedly so open-minded and wonderful and, you know, and uh, lovey and huggy that would throw chairs across the room if you dared uh, do something that they didn't like. And um, I saw some really, really ugly behavior, the antithesis of open-mindedness, that's for sure. And like Scott Rudin. Scott Rudin has been criticized very recently by his uh, young people who've worked for him are coming forward and saying the abuse was just intolerable. And turns out the movie Swimming with Sharks was actually inspired by or based on Scott Rudin's behavior. Mm-hmm. So you that behavior that you experienced, that you saw, that has been in, in so many movies... When did it start to come to you that there was a wonderful novel in here that sh- sort of kind of showed what happens to the human being caught up in all this? Well, the the uh, original uh, spark for the novel was just a short story that I was I was writing a bunch of short stories at the time, and um, it was called Six Problems in the San Fernando Valley, and it was just. Um, there was some quirky things around the valley. I just would notice things. There was always a puddle at Colfax and uh, I think it was Riverside. It was just there. I mean, in, you know, in Southern California, you'd have a puddle in the street constantly. That was odd. So I was writing some quirky stuff about that. And there was this one traffic light that was in the wrong place and people would always have accidents. I was talking about that. Then I kept seeing these these mattress trucks, these pickup trucks, old Toyota pickup trucks, you know, pluming blue smoke. And with Mexican-Americans driving them piled high with, you know, with uh, uh, mattresses. And I just kept seeing this and seeing that. And then all of a sudden, 
I saw one on the freeway and I went, oh my goodness. And the, and the concept of the novel hit that, you know, these guys were archangels and not to give too much of the novel away. Well, I was going to say, let's give, let's give listeners a little synopsis of what's going on in Six Devils. Okay. I mean, it starts out uh, with a, a screenwriter who wants to end his life. Correct. Um, he's done. Right. It's tr- Truman Morrow. I love the name. He's the true man. Uh, he wants to jump into the Los Angeles River and be done with it. He's been lied to, used enough. He's fallen out of love. Everything has fallen apart for this guy. And who rescues him? Right. He's been burned out by the business. And he sees script pages flying by and they cemented. The Los Angeles River, whoever doesn't know about it, who's never seen it, is just one big cement river. It's not, you know, there's not muddy banks or there's, it's not like a river you would think about it. It's this big cement channel, which is actually a river. It's a true river, but they had to cement it over to stop erosion. And um, so he's there and he's going to do himself in because he just can't take it anymore. He's behind on his rent. And there's a very strange Los Angeles thunderstorm that's happening. And um, he gets he gets rescued by a very strange person. Someone stops him from committing suicide. And the story goes on from there. This strange visitor, this strange person um, is an extraordinary he, person. Well, he tells he tells Truman that he's been chosen for something important in his life that he's not allowed to end it right now. Right, he's been chosen for something much more important than fame and fortune that's right that's right because that really that is the cancer that kills uh all the people in in our country right now is the overabundance of fame and fortune seekers and the underabundance of people who care about their fellow human beings so this character roberto cares saves this man sends him on his way on his mission and that is the book right that you that you read in Six Devils in the San Fernando Valley is Truman getting reeled into and pulled into this world of supernatural reality that exists right on the periphery of what actually is real and is deeply tied to the imagination business, Hollywood, the best place to cover it up. Right. And there's a lot of people who tell you there's no duality, there's no good and evil. Uh, I personally think there certainly is good and evil. And of course, this is um, this is a novel. And um, but a lot of it is based in, in fact, in the evil that exists. You know, um, one person will become a star. And that one person who defies odds, you know, and they, they've got lucky. And if you look through the end of the telescope, there is a million people that will chase that same fate they'll they'll chase that and they could never be as lucky it's just not going right. to work out that person was very very lucky and everybody says boy they could do it i could do it it's not true and unfortunately a lot of lives are ruined that way um people they forgo other careers families children and happiness and they keep postponing well into their 40s even 50s and 60s and they come away and say holy smokes what did i do you know, when well, there's entire apartment complexes in Hollywood full of families that all have the cutest kid you've ever seen, and someone told them they could star in television pilots, so they mortgage the home and they live at the Oaks apartment building on La Cienega, right. and you know, until the money runs out and they didn't get the commercial or the TV show or whatever. Yeah, and they say there's a lot, you know, a, a street lamp for every broken heart in Broadway. Boy, Los Angeles has got a str- lot of street lamps. You know. So there's like a systematic 
uh, scamming going on of good-natured people seeking to be involved in this wonderful business. And the hero of your novel, Truman, he actually gets to the, you know, he finds the source of some of these, uh, let's just say, uh, bad ways of humans abusing other humans. He gets to the source of it. And, and he finds that its source is actually rooted in something that's truly an ancient evil. It's not just assholes running show business. Right. I think one more poetic parts where it was, you know, connected to a supernatural event that happens in the, in the stories where the, the chief head of the studio has his whole walls lined with people's headshots. And Truman is there and he sees all the faces grow old in front of them and they grow sad and old and they're crying these pictures start crying i just thought that was an interesting way to, to to say that you know you can grow old in that in that business and um never attain what you what you want to attain and some people they they don't even appreciate the small victories they're still looking for that gigantic parade and what i found in hollywood not that i wasn't appreciative of everything that i did because i i enjoyed every minute of my success but was uh, it, it there was never any parades. There's, there's really never a parade because, as my friend Mike Andreas used to say, it's a paper cup business. In other words, you make, especially in TV, you make the perfect paper cup for that week. It's the best paper cup on the planet. And then when it's done, you crush it under your feet and it's gone. So a lot of those are gypsy productions. It's originally a gypsy business. And um, you'll work for six months and you're high on the hog and everything's wonderful and then you're out of work. And unfortunately, because of the greed and stuff that's gone on and the infighting with the unions and the producers and the writers, uh, that really started back in 2008, um, the production, the budgets have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and they've really adopted the indie um the indie method of filmmaking and they're not it's it's amazing how many uh how lack how many uh, how few excuse me how few big productions are really happening yeah i know it's a scaled down movie business for sure yeah. right now and you know everything's there's no more big theater well certainly with covid but i mean that's really gone away you know the home theater is everything tv uh, I know I talked about the trashy side of TV that's happening, but some of the best stuff being put out there, I mentioned Better Call Saul, which is a personal favorite. And um, there, of course, there was The Sopranos and uh, some other great shows and a show I worked on, Big Level, which was terrific for HBO. Some of that stuff is really the golden age of television because it's, it's better than movies. And that's what, yeah. with Six Devils, everybody said, you want to make a movie or a TV show? I want to make a TV series because I think this... I think it would have legs. Uh, it's a personal opinion, but um, I think. Well, I think it's a story that that we don't see enough, and we don't see really often. Hollywood doesn't like to make stories about its dark side. No, uh, um, it likes to make mockumentaries. It likes to. It doesn't really like to get right to the heart of the matter. Right, and that that's what Six Devils does. That's why I believe the time is is quickly approaching for audiences to embrace a show like that in a whole new format and a whole new indie way. Right. But this, this story of the business, I mean, we've seen mommy dearest, we've seen the big picture, but we've, we, we've never seen just the absolute consumption of your fellow human souls in a way that is tied to the crushing of dreams um, by a business that crushes 99% of the dreams. It really doesn't care one bit. I mean, there's...
and doesn't not, not not one one bit well you know it's it's like anything else um you know a lot of corporations there's not a lot of care going on with with uh, employees and it's it's, it's impersonal it, it's in, and it's arbitrary completely it's follow the money um and unfortunately a lot of the money's leaving los angeles uh, this i think there's more production now in atlanta uh than there is in uh, los angeles and that's so unbelievable and as i we've spoken privately i think the last thing that's holding any um, of the former glory of Hollywood is p- the post-production business. I, I firmly believe that, you know, listen, L.A. still owns post. And if anybody listening doesn't know what I mean by that is there's production when you film something, you know, with the actors on the set and on the soundstage. And then the post-production is what happens after that's all filmed and it's in the can and you have to add the sound and the music and it has to be mixed and uh, think you know edited that's the post-production and los angeles owns that lock stock and barrel still so if there were you know if if there was a major investment made in atlanta or even new york or even santa fe new mexico um there were there's some great studios out there there would be uh i think you they would pull a good portion of everything that's left out of hollywood um I believe that's the case, though. Yeah. I, 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 because this, you know, they have this. Listen, Los Angeles still has all the post houses, and and the talent is still out there, and they have a, a wide selection of post houses of, of all different price levels that doesn't exist anywhere else in that, um, in in that capacity. So I think if that capacity happened, even fifty percent more in some other city, it would it would really put the last vestiges of Hollywood out of what what would that look like to you like five post houses that could all operate simultaneously you need a big big scoring stage you need a big dub stage connected to it you need Foley but you need the talent too you know you need um good music so you gotta be by a city that has a lot of talented musicians and people who can yeah but also mixers and and Foley artists and music editors and uh all that stuff you know the post the post thing is what finishes your film but was finalizes it or makes it right you know if anybody's seen unedited um film just with with a production sound it's it's really almost disturbing you say wow that seems amateurish it all gets made and and polished in the post well i mean yeah george lucas said music is 50 percent of the movie going experience and he's right. right right um well you know that is that's a that's a different conversation about uh, where the business goes. Right. I think I think it's going somewhere even more personal, where you take all the great content that you're talking about, you take the the freedom to create stories, whatever story you want. But the missing component is always the monetization for the artist in a way that makes it so that if you want to do it. And you're good at it, and you can attract an audience. You could monetize it and make a living off that. I agree. We may we may be on the verge of that. Uh, that's that is the corner we're probably turning now with cryptocurrency and all these new ways of monetizing entertainment and distributing it. But back to your work that uh you know every listener that knows me knows that my passion project is six devils in the san fernando valley um and i want to see it made into a television series as well but i want to talk about the sequel that you're releasing very soon six angels in the san fernando valley 
Yeah, well, I've um, been working on it in a while, and um, it. I haven't put together my elevator pitch yet, so okay. <laughs> I may stumble a little bit with the description of the book. But it's you don't need to uh, you you do not need to have read the uh, first novel in order to enjoy this. It is a separate story, although Truman Morrow is the chief protagonist. Uh, Roberto is in it. Um, there are other characters from the first novel that are in it, and um, it's a story of a whole bunch of people and um, former movie stars and down in their luck, uh, um, you know, film stars and television stars that have lost their way and they need to be rescued. Uh, without right. giving too much of it away, that's essentially what happens. Yeah, no, I think it's... Uh... Um, I've always I, I can't say anything about the book, which I've had a sneak peek at, but I've always had this uh, weird theory that the stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame are secretly chambers that hold the tortured souls of old celebrities. <laughs> Pretty close to the, to the <laughs> elevator pitch. <laughs> so, <laughs> so fame's a bitch, and you don't escape it for all of eternity. No, it's, That's <laughs> you know. It's, it's, I, I try to think of the people who, who probably really celebrated their fame best. Um, you know, Paul Newman is one that comes to mind. That just guy, that guy just did it, you know, and he raced cars and he, um, you know, he had a wonderful marriage for, I don't know how long and charities. And, you know, I don't, of course, I don't know everything went on in his life, but he just seemed like he just did it right. Clint Eastwood is another person. It seems like he just did it right. I don't know too much about the man, but everybody I know, I only met him. And who and who's a great who's a great from their era that did it wrong? Marlon Brando. How did he do it? He got political before anyone else. He was Sean Penn before Sean Penn. Right. Yeah. And then and then what did he do? He went nuts on an island somewhere eating coconuts. Yeah, it's so sad. I mean, I don't know about substance abuse and all. Of course, that's that takes over anybody's life, not just a film star. But and didn't his son die as well? I believe he did, Christian. Didn't yeah. his son like he shoot himself in the head? Something was something was very very awful. Christian Brando. So look, let, this brings us into the you know let's not skirt around it. Let's get into the meat of Six Devils in the San Fernando Valley because really that's what attracts me to the story. That's what I like about it. Is this horror that happens to everybody that succeeds in this business uh if you listen to my episode with matt davis he said it's a strange depression that comes over people um you're the guy who wrote a book that says that's the work of dark forces that really truly exist in our reality to this day i believe that yeah it's why people go to church it's why people wear amulets it's why people say the rosary evil is real and it's so well masked, it's so well hidden that, as I said at the kind of opening of the podcast, the perfect place to hide evil is in make-believe land. Well, yeah, so, it's also unfashionable to say that there is evil because um, I think there's one of the reviews on Amazon with my book that said, I do not believe in duality, but she liked the story. You know, thank you for liking the story, but I certainly believe in the duality of good and evil. Um, my dad, you know, taught me when I was a little kid and it always stuck with me you know what right and wrong is. You just know it. You know it. And don't lose that. You know, don't lose the fact that you know it and just act accordingly. Um, and of course, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life and who hasn't. But um, as far as Hollywood goes, uh, boy, I have some of my best friends in the world out there. And and, um, and I don't mean to demean any of their careers because a lot of them have been very successful and very happy. And and some of the people that I know are the happiest are just, they just treat it as a job and they, but they, 
but they put their family first, they put their uh, faiths first or their sobriety or whatever they're going to do first. And they, um, that's a job, you know, it's the fame thing is what chasing that, you know, uh, as I said, there's really no parades when you chase that and you have to get high off that. I'm a star or I have, I need more money. If you can't manage that boy, you're in for a tough ride out there. Cause it's a very, secular business um mm-hmm. you go around it is a merry-go-round you'll you'll be riding on the you know the uh the pink horse and then all of a sudden you just get thrown off and um i was i was told that many times you know um it's a it it's a circle and you'll find yourself in the circle and you'll find yourself out as quick as you got in as quick as you got in yep and uh again i'll um there's another quote. I think it's in the first novel. I forget. And it's starting to become a blur between the first and the second. But I said, um, um, nobody invited you. Um, nobody cares that you're here. And no one will care if you leave. And if you can deal with that, welcome to Hollywood. Yeah, well, that's a that's a hell of a quote. I find myself these days um, having a hard time recalling people that are pretty well-known celebrities, very famous celebrities sometimes. They become blurs in my head from 10 years ago, 15 years ago. What, what was that person's name? And it really taught me something about the pointless pursuit of fame, which is really just a uh, popularity contest at the moment you're in it. You know, you want to be the popular person or you want to be hanging out with the popular person. You know, that that person's crowd is the cool crowd. That's who you want to roll with and be with. And that, uh, that's why they say Hollywood is high school with money because yeah. um, it really but, is in that way. I mean, when somebody and, and there's always that new freshman star and then there's his you know competition across town and which gang of friends is going to be the uh, the cool cats that roll up and, and become tomorrow's movie stars. So right. it's all very alluring and it's all very uh sexy and it's all a lot of fun to be around it's an absolute blast to be around until it's not until the until the mortgages do yeah but until something else until something happens where you recognize the sort of dark emptiness of it all absolutely and there's, it's funny you should mention that high school with money um which i was told that many many moons ago believe it or not if anyone's ever seen uh uh, the the video for Dude Look Like a Lady by Aerosmith. I was yes. on that. That was in the Chaplin soundstage. I was there that day with my good buddy, Rudy Richmond, and we were watching them film that. And the director, and I forget his name, he was a big you know music video director at the time. He's the one who, who said that to me. He goes, I love this. It's just high school with money. And I'll never forget that. And that was one of my first times in Los Angeles. That was 1986, 87, something like that. But... Um, yeah, um, and, it, and speaking of, uh, of high school with money, there's two characters in the um, Six Angels in the San Fernando Valley book that are these uh, a young producer and a young starlet um, based on, you know, the, 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 some of the, the teens, the stars from the 90s and some of the rest of And there's two characters that... Um, are in the book, which I know you you said uh, they should have their own novel, and I actually was thinking about that. But they're a big part of Six Angels, and um, they are the uh, 
they are the poster children for um, the secular um, part. The young star that's chewed up and spit Correct. out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the 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 cycle of destruction that happens to talent that goes into a corporate show business environment and ends up in its own sad, cold hell. Right. <laughs> every time and, and they happen to be married and there's this whole thing that goes on with them and there are two of the people that have lost their way in the book and need to be rescued yeah no it's uh it's good stuff i mean the the real uh bottom line is there's something supernatural about fame and about the business that makes people famous show business uh it's a desired, coveted position in America. It feels like to be royalty in America is to be famous. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, listen, we live in a capitalist society, thank goodness. Um, well, hopefully, well, we'll see what happens. But, um, you know, um, unfortunately, there's this, there's this ugly froth that comes out of that capitalism sometimes of people that just feel like they're, uh, the more money they get, the more important they are. And um, when you put a TV camera or a movie camera in front of that, sometimes the ego can get a little out of shape. And um, that's a tall order to keep going as far as being human, you know. Um, not me. And what happens is we all suffer because we don't get any good stories. The airwaves get crowded with these megalomaniacs and their uh, self-important shows. The storytelling goes down the magic goes out the door and everything gets politicized. I mean, when you were talking about Paul Newman, I was just imagining what if he was a, you know, anti-global warming uh, D-bag, you know, it would just be, he wouldn't be Paul Newman anymore. I don't think right. a lot of, I don't think a lot of folks realized. Uh, we, I mean, we in the audience get a sense of it. Folks who worked in, in the business really know that talent is disposable. But the only one who doesn't know it is talent at the time. They don't know they're disposable. Well, absolutely. But you mentioned about the politics. I mean, Johnny Carson was the person, you know, he was told so many times he had to take a stand this way or that. And he, this video, I've seen it on YouTube of him saying, absolutely not. Once you start that, he says, it doesn't end. And yeah, you're trapped. Right. And in this, in this polarized country that we live in now, you immediately eliminate half of your business, half of your audience. Now, what what smart business person wants to eliminate half their audience with with statements and with action? I mean, if if you're that passionate about something, why don't you do it quietly? Why don't you, you know, work in a soup kitchen? Why don't you do something? As opposed to getting on the airwaves, showing everyone how famous and important you are in your yacht or your helicopter or having your armed guards with you and stop telling people what to do because there's a lot of people that don't don't won't listen to you just because that you're insulated and um special you know well they you ruin the the celebrities ruin their personal brand you can no longer see them in the characters that they used to play you only see them as aggravating uh speakers of public policy where at the end of the day um, most folks want to be entertained and they just want to have whatever they had to do with work taken off their mind for a couple of hours and if the politics of the day and the narrative of the popular narrative features and stars are entertainers saying the same garbage as our politicians uh, there's a serious need for a revolution in storytelling art creation independence 
Uh, and that's that's what I'm trying to make this podcast all about and, and why I wanted to get people to be more familiar with your book is your book also was one of the first sort of missiles launched, in my opinion, into the world of let's take back the narrative and tell the truth about life and let's create that great art that's missing from the scene. Let's create that gentlemanly uh, storytelling that that isn't isn't about pornographic scenes, but is about uh, the human character and all of its flaws and how that works itself out in the American system. Yeah, well, what I tried to do, thank you very much, by the way, what, what I tried to do was there's no preaching that goes on in uh, Six Devils or Six Angels, none, zero. Um, I just try to show things as they are with um, people who are um, getting lost and with people who can help them, you know, of course it's told dramatically, but, um, and, um, you know, there's, as you know, there has been a, a pilot written for six devils and we're, uh, actively working on that. Um, and it's not, it's not preachy. It wouldn't be on the conservative channel or anything like that. It's not, it's not, it's not that way. It is pure entertainment. There's some pretty racy stuff that goes on, but, it, but, you know, and executionally, but the concept is good versus evil. Set against this backdrop, which we see every day in real life of people who pursue fame, finding their way on the highway to evil, essentially. Right. I mean, the, the personal ruin, personal ruin by way of all that greed, all that, all that fame seeking, all that willingness to give up the important things in life to get the shiny object in life and to tell the audience that story in its proper setting, right? which, which is show business. Unfortunately, it, it would be cleansing and it would be good for the business itself. And audiences would actually have a better understanding of what goes on. And it would be the best thing that ever happened to the me too movement is a show that told the truth about the abuse. I mean, look at Hollywood. They've made, They've made it their business to dress down every industry for every wrong that one or two people did here or there or any scam, Enron. I mean, they've taken down entire entire companies, industries through storytelling. Mm -hmm. But all along the way, there's a long string of damaged, broken souls that are chewed up and spit out by this business. And that story is the story that nobody tells that you told. Right. And so let's let's hope that this becomes a series in the in the way that we want it to so that people can have it on their iPhone, their iPad, their television, whatever. Right. But they need to receive the story and and see finally at long last this dynamic between fame seeking and personal ruin that is the only real systematic thing that I know. Right. And as far as the Me Too thing, that whole concept, I mean, there's a lot of that that goes on in Six Devils in the San Fernando Valley, and it's certainly in the script. I mean, the I'm not going to blow too much by saying the opening of the pilot has a woman who's disrobing, walking in the weeds, and, uh, you know, stoned out of her mind who climbs a ladder, and we see that she's on the Hollywood sign, and she dives off. And, of course, there's a lot deeper part of the story that goes along with that. It's not just this, you know, salacious thing that happens in um, – illustrating you know an upset actress or anything like it, it's very deep to what happens there we find out later episodes but um my point is that um 
women have been abused in Hollywood forever, you know, and for them to get on their high horse and uh, pretend that they're so holier than now and they're, you know, keeping the planet safe and the country safe and, and you know, is just a joke. I mean, what's gone on there uh, for forever? You know, the, yeah. everybody knows the phrase casting couch. Man, that's just been going on forever. Yeah, I mean, it's just now that there's a casting couch for uh, straight guys, for gay guys, for pedophiles. Uh, everybody has their own casting couch. They come in different models, different settings, different features. It's a joke. Right. <laughs> there's a casting waterbed somewhere. Tell me what you're going to work on now that you have two books written. Uh, Six Devils, which is already out. It's been out for years. Well-reviewed. Great novel. And Six Angels, the sequel. I know you've released uh, an album of independent music in the past year. Mm -hmm. What else is... What's next for a guy like you who has an infinite amount of ability and a Wild West new world of content creation and getting it to your audience in, in unique ways that could pay off well i want to throw this back at you because i know that you're going to be a studio head one day i absolutely know it you have the talent first of all the podcast is amazing you're a natural dj uh, your voice is the perfect timbre talking about post-production uh you're sharp you're funny uh it's engaging you're you're brave with that and i i said you know that you could definitely be a studio head and all you people out there with money, get with it and, and put this guy in, in the, uh, the main office because um, I know that your ideas are, are, you know, bigger than just one TV series. That's for sure. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, that means a lot to me, Ernie. You know, it's um, I'm, a, I'm not afraid to swing the bat. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, you, <laughs> you break a few heads along the way. That's for sure. Uh. Well, it's been great to chat with you. It's been great to get people to be a little bit more familiar with your first book if they haven't read it already and curious about your second book. When will Six Angels be released? Do you have an actual date? Well, I don't have an actual date right now. I'm going back and uh, I'm doing some copy editing and I suck at it. And um, uh, my friend Eileen is helping me with that and that's wonderful for her to do that. She's... Um, um, a terrific copy editor and just you know, when getting... she's when she's slow do you call her up and you're like come on Eileen <laughs> <laughs> you had to go there I know I had to dad yeah, jokes cool. right no um yeah when that's all done and then I just actually right before we um started recording this I just got a bunch of other covers and um, I showed you the first draft and they need to be tweaked a little bit so it's kind of exhausting, you know, getting that all done. So you ask me what I'm going to do in the future. I don't know. I just want to get this finished. And I'm it's probably going to do some more music after that. But I really want to get the TV show going. And um, got a lot of ideas for that. Well, we, yeah, I believe we're going to... I think that's that's going to happen. I've always believed that. I've never lost faith in that. I know that it's... Um, in the time that I've been talking to you about this project, look at how much the world has come around to the project's side. True story. That's a true story that'll blow people's mind. If they go back and read this book and they dig a little into how many times we've been like, uh, <clears throat> we're going to get this TV show started this year. I mean, the world just keeps getting more and more and more 
relevant to what has already been written. So uh, to anybody out there that is that is listening, my pitch, it's not authorized by Ernie, but the way I pitch the TV series, the way I try to explain it to people is it's a violent highway to heaven. So <laughs> Highway to Heaven was all about sending people back uh, and freeing them from their sins. This is about this is about relieving people from their their prisons of evil, and and it's uh, and it's exciting and fun. So congratulations again. It's a great series of books, and it's an honor to promote it on this podcast, which is about trying to raise up the new culture. And you're one of the original new culturists, so uh, thank you for giving me this uh, hour of your time tonight. Thanks, my friend. I appreciate it. All right. I'll be posting this on Friday, so be sure to tune in.